dealing with the very last part of Titus. Uh, and this is a section that really just reiterates a lot that we've been talking about from Second Peter and Jude. Um, so a lot of the things that we talk about should feel very familiar, actually. Um, now, the things that are said here are going to be kind of nuanced. There's things that are clear, but there's things where I might be just trying to convey the principle of certain matters that do require wisdom and balance. Uh, so, for instance, you know, the things to avoid in verse 9. You know, it requires wisdom and balance to recognize when you're involved in something that really should be avoided. Uh, verse 10 and 11, you know, to catching myself if I'm being divisive takes wisdom and balance. Um, so this is going to be difficult in that way. Um, if, if it seems like uh, I haven't talked about things fairly or have made a wrong application of the text, um, every lesson is wide open that I give to approach me and talk about that. I certainly want to be extremely approachable with disagreeing on points in a lesson or saying, you know, I think maybe this was taken too far, this wasn't taken far enough. And with a nuanced lesson like this, I certainly particularly invite that. Now, with chapter 3, notice verse 2 by way of introduction. We're told to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all, to all people. Uh, your translation, like mine, might say to show every consideration to all men. I think these qualities are in contrast to verses 9 through 11. You know, we're called to be a people who are peaceable, gentle, or considerate. And in contrast to this, we're to avoid discussions that can lead us astray from those principles, and we're certainly not to become the kind of people that uh, encourage uh, divisiveness in verse 10. You know, so verse 10 is not just talking about someone with a divisive attitude, but a divisive person. Um, we're certainly instructed to be the opposite of that. So we want to be really careful with understanding these things. So we're really going to be spending uh, the lesson primarily in verses 9 through 11. Uh, we're not really going to be talking much about the final exhortations to Titus personally in 12 through 15. Uh, but Titus, I hope you've been encouraged by this book. Um, it's a very practical book. There are a lot of hard instructions, not necessarily to understand, but just to carry with us in our day-to-day -day, day -day lives. Um, but I hope you've been challenged and even transformed this past year we've gone through Titus. Uh, I've been edified so strongly, not just from teaching the text, but discussions that have come because of the teaching uh, with you all this past year. So I appreciate so much everybody just listening and paying such careful attention and even determining to commit to doing the things that we're told to do in this letter. So what to avoid and who to reject. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 9 through 11 again. I mean, really, I'll start in verse 8, actually, because there is a contrast that I've referenced here on the board, 8 through uh, 15, 8 through 15. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. 
Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So verse 8, we're told, as we have been frequently told in this letter, to be careful to engage in good deeds, which verse 14 reiterates this point. And we're told that that is good and profitable. Well, at the end of verse 9, we're told that these controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law, in contrast to verse 8, these are unprofitable and worthless. So as we are pursuing what is good and profitable, we also have to be careful to recognize and to avoid things that are unprofitable and worthless in comparison. So I'm going to lump two things together, these foolish controversies and quarrels. What are foolish controversies and quarrels? And I want to, again, be careful to be balanced in this. Um, I think the, the key words here are these are controversies and they are quarrels. It doesn't mean that, as we talked about in our Bible class, it doesn't mean that we can't maybe talk about some things that are not clear, have some discussion about that, um, ask questions about that. But there's certainly only so far we can go. And there's certainly a point where we really need to recognize where we are having discussions and talking about things in a way that is no longer profitable. And things can certainly become foolish when it becomes controversial. And we end up arguing about things we really should not be arguing about. Paul, not just to Titus, but to Timothy, he has gone in length instructing these evangelists about things that they are to avoid. And so what I really want to do in clarifying what would be foolish controversies and quarrels, give you a tour with times that <coughs> Paul exhorts Timothy particularly uh, about matters that I think detail this a little bit more. Start at 1 Timothy chapter 1 <coughs> with how Paul starts his letter uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. And just in terms of uh, principle here, consider the fact that of everything Paul could start his letter with to an evangelist, this is how he starts his letter. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to t teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths. And a myth here would be just things that people make up they just invent in their own mind, but they get perpetuated and passed down because people aren't checking its source or caring enough to uh, see if it's from a reliable source. They're not to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So how I've summarized this on the board, and, and we don't have time in this lesson to detail these, these extra passages, but more to communicate the principle, what would be a foolish controversy or quarrel here in 1 Timothy 1? I think it would be arguing about matters that are completely inconsequential, meaning they just, they don't matter. <laughs> There's no practical benefit. There's no spiritual benefit. So it's just literally pointless to argue about it, to raise a stink 
about it. So in verse 5, what's the goal of our instruction? It's love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's one of the most important verses for me just to memorize. You know, what's the point of Bible teaching? What's the point of sermons and Bible classes? It's to further this goal. And so in verse 6, I've been a part of congregations and have visited congregations where in Bible classes, there's fruitless discussion happening because you're completely missing the point of the text. You're completely missing the point of what the Bible is trying to teach, even passages that are clearly trying to teach something particular. The point is being missed entirely. So we've got to be careful that we, we focus where God puts his focus and we, we understand what, what is the point of God's word? What's, what's the goal of the instruction? Turn to 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. So number one, what would be a foolish controversy? It's would be arguing about things that are inconsequential. There's no practical or spiritual benefit to it. Look at chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of deprived, of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So how I would summarize this, it's very common for someone to argue from a foundation of anger or selfish intent. You know, they're more interested in arguing about something being done their way or simply from their perspective when there's a different way of seeing things or the Bible gives more liberty for a different perspective. But it's dangerous to argue from a place that's just from anger and emotion rather than from love and edification. Um, so we have to be really careful that when we're when we're making an argument, that it's from pure motives. You know, it can be, well, a way that I'm going to be hopefully repeating, a uh, point I'm going to be repeating in the lesson is, again, balance. Um, balance and patience. I think patience with people, being proactive, being patient, bears out intentions. If, there's a point where it definitely becomes obvious when a person is not sincerely looking for the truth, they're not looking for resolution. They're just angry. And they keep bringing things up simply because they're angry with people or angry in general. You've got to be really careful about that and able to recognize that. Those kinds of arguments either need to be shut down or outright avoided. Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul has more to say here, about wrangling about words or quarreling about words. Second Timothy 2, 14 through 18. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. And mind you really quickly, solemnly charge them in the presence of God. This is a very stern warning. <laughs> solemnly charge them in the presence of God. Don't miss that. Not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. And notice this famous verse is in contrast to this. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of the truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene <laughs> among them <clears throat> are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. 
So verse 14, this idea of wrangling about words is described as being extremely dangerous. What would that be? I think one thing is be really careful when someone has some new controversial point because they've seen something that's never been seen before in the Greek or in the Hebrew. Uh, this might sound weird, um, but I've never met anyone who knows Greek better than my dad. When he was younger, he obsessively learned Greek, learned not just how to read biblical Greek, but actual just Greek outside of the Bible, reading like newspaper type things from ancient Rome, things like that. And he never references the Greek. And he's told me frequently <laughs> that there are not hidden messages in the Greek. Sometimes defining words can be helpful. Maybe it can help clarify a point. But again, be really careful. I've studied with people where they think that there's some kind of hidden thing in the Greek and all our English Bibles. You know, they just don't cut it. There's something that you haven't seen in the English when really context, context bears out the point. A sentence or full instruction bears out a point clearly and getting lost in a word can oftentimes be distracting from what is very clearly the main point. Um, something as an example I've run into very, very often um, I don't run into it as much here as I did in the past. Mainly in Minnesota, I ran into this quite a bit. Uh, Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. People would argue that word for in the Greek is the word the Greek word ice, which means because of sometimes. Therefore, you're getting baptized because of the remission of sins. And I'll just tell you, it's a really silly argument that is extremely easy to talk through and think through. But again, if someone is looking for hidden meanings, oftentimes there is an attitude there that is really not looking for the truth. We also have to be careful even beyond that. Arguing over words where maybe you're arguing something very specific because of how you understand a word, when maybe there's a principle involved in, again, an instruction or a context that gives liberty for plethora, uh, an array of conclusions because it's a principle being conveyed, not just something very, very, very narrow. So again, we just have to be really, really careful about that, really humble-hearted about that. And again, you just look at the warning in verse 14. You know, this is something that is useless and ruins us. So we just have to be very sensitive. You know, am I wrangling about words here? Or can I just listen and be more fair, maybe to context or a different perspective? Same chapter, 22 through 26. Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. By the way, are you noticing a consistency in what Paul is telling Timothy and Titus to really be focused on? In contrast, verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. There's something about arguing that can be addicting to someone with an arrogant attitude. I just want to say verse 24. It's important to disagree sometimes, right? It's important to disagree. It's important to advocate for the truth. But I want to advocate that we need to be extremely cautious about enjoying debate, looking for arguments enjoying arguments, enjoying proving people wrong. You know, it has to happen. When I'm studying with someone, we've got to talk about hard things, inevitably. It's guaranteed. I'm not going to have a study with anybody, even brethren. You know, when you and I study together, you know, probably going to have to talk about some hard things. So it doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. 
It doesn't mean that disagreeing even isn't important and even inevitable. But man, it's not something we enjoy. It's not something we look for. We're not being argumentative. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. I'll just say as kind of a, a blanket generalization, there are some preachers I see on Facebook where they post on every argument that has any relation to the Bible. They're always stirring up arguments. They debate people and things that aren't even theirs to debate and just insert themselves in other people's arguments. Wow. Got to be super careful about this. You know, we care for the truth. We understand that knowing the truth is critical. At the same time, we are not a people who enjoy or look for arguing and stirring up arguments. But verse 23, fundamentally the principle here with foolish controversies, arguing matters where God just gives no clear answer. And it's certainly not on the subjects that God gives emphasis to. You know, we're going to refuse foolish, ignorant speculations. Why? Because then it's my opinion against your opinion. It's nothing that we can know for a certainty. And so the Lord's bondservant, in contrast to this, must not be quarrelsome. Meaning we're not just engaging in issues of speculation. You know, you're allowed to have opinions about matters where there's room for opinion. You're allowed to have very strong convictions on matters where I may not have the same conviction. You know, and we need to give liberty to each other to have opinions. But again, we need to be really careful that we are not arguing matters where God gives no clear answer whatsoever. And the Bible really gives no weight of emphasis to something. Again, there's balance, there's nuance, but we just need to be sensitive and humble-hearted, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and we need to be fair with how we hear things and listen to brethren. And patience will bear things out. Patience in communication, patience in trying to work with people. Doesn't mean we can't ask hard questions. Doesn't mean we can't express difficult doubts that we may even struggle with feeling like maybe it's embarrassing to bring up this specific doubt. That's, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. We're talking about something that at its heart actually has a bad attitude and is going to take us away from the emphasis the truth points us to. All right. Hope that's helpful. Back to Titus chapter 3. Um, some things I'll cover more briefly is the genealogies and disputes about the law. You know, the, the idea of genealogies isn't that there aren't points to be made about Genesis and the Chronicles where there are genealogies. Matthew and Luke have genealogies of Jesus. Again, it's not that those genealogies in the Bible aren't important. It's not that those things shouldn't be read and taught. This is more talking about the idea of a person asserting a sense of importance because of their ancestry. This would be particularly tempting for a Jew. Uh, look back at chapter 1, verse 10 here really quick. Chapter 1, 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning of the Jewish lineage, who must be silenced because they upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So the idea is nobody is more important than anybody else because of your ancestry. You know, I think there's verses that we can use to uh, just be very frank about this. Galatians 3, among other passages, tells us that we're all sons of God through faith. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters of God directly. Nothing is more important than that. So if I've been baptized into Christ, it doesn't matter who's my great, 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 great grandfather. What matters is God is my father. And I've been born again spiritually. I want to make this point too. 
we had a family here who earlier this year decided to become Messianic Jews. So I do think it's important to understand how pointless these things are and the need to be frank about them with how clear the Bible is on it because this isn't just an ancient issue. There are uh, people besides this family who is here, besides them, who are drawn into these things to see a sense of importance because while I can trace my lineage back to so-and-so, we just have to be aware. That's delving into prideful, dangerous territory that the Bible explicitly tells us to avoid. With that, disputes about the law. This isn't talking about that we can't have conversations, kind of wondering about connections between the Old and New Testament. You know, kind of even, dare I say, speculating at times in personal conversation. You know, does this New Testament passage relate to this? And, you know, from an Old Testament context, you know, maybe what would this look like when it was applied? You know, there's maybe some more innocent, uh, helpful conversations we can have in that regard. But I think what this is dealing with is more people arguing applications of an Old Testament law when it is no longer binding. And again, this is something that the Bible is frank about, clear. Galatians 3, 24 through 25, for example, uh, tells us very clearly we're no longer under the law of Moses. There is no value to arguing that someone keeps some aspect of the Old Testament law because that law is no longer binding upon us in Christ. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Um, silence can say a lot. I think a lot of times if you're hearing someone advocate for something or even say something strongly, you just don't need to respond. Um, and silence oftentimes is just the correct response. But sometimes these things are unavoidable. Sometimes something has to be said because somebody is advocating something around the church and you have to get involved and, and address it. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, I think is extremely helpful. Do not answer a fool according to his folly lest you become like him. Answer a fool, as this folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. The idea is, don't get caught up in a foolish man's foolish arguments. Don't think that his foolishness on the surface, whatever he might be arguing, is really the issue. You know, in Titus 1, as he would continue with those who upset whole families, they must be silenced. He talks about, reprove them severely, that they may be sound in faith. Sometimes you just have to have confidence that the answer in the Bible is so clear. Sometimes it's helpful just to say, like, this is foolish. (laughs) Or to say, you know, this just isn't important. Or to say, you know, it's just not worth debating. You know, and go to a verse like this and say, we really just need to avoid things like this. You know, is this really profitable? You know, and it can feel hard sometimes to address things very frankly. But I think what Paul is advocating to Titus, the verses we looked at to Timothy, You know, sometimes you don't flatter someone by thinking, oh, you want to talk about this? Let's talk endlessly about this pointless thing. Sometimes you've got to see what the real issue is and understand a normal, good-hearted person wouldn't be making such a big deal out of this. A normal, good-hearted person would be satisfied with the clear Bible answer. So to go on and on about this or to continue uh, advocating for something controversial that's been addressed There's a point where you say, okay, that's enough. We don't need to go on and on about this. Again, I know that can sound cruel, maybe even harsh, but we have to recognize there's a point when these things are unprofitable and worthless, even destructive and ruinous to the hearers. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't just get caught up in foolish controversies. But answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. And we're to reject divisive people. 
So I'll read verse 10 and 11 again. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. I appreciate the ESV translation. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And I think that's the translation that Paul Kelsey read for a scripture reading. Uh, The idea is this. Again, to be frank about what this is saying, as something in Titus that is very frank, we must not tolerate a person who stirs up division or allow them to change the culture of a local church. And that can happen. I've seen it happen. I've known brethren where that happens in their local church. As I was listening to a brother uh, teach on these verses this past week as I was preparing for this lesson, he brought up being a part of a local church where there was someone in the Bible class that was always overly argumentative, you know, not just offering disagreement, but really being abrasive consistently, like overly abrasive. And the church, you know, just kind of tiptoed around this person and learned to tolerate that. Well, someone new came in and wanted to place membership with the group. But they told the guys, they said, look, I want to place membership with the group. but You've got to take care of this person who is being abrasively divisive. And the person giving the lesson who was a part of that church said it was a wake up call. And he realized they were tolerating something that biblically they needed to stop tolerating. They corrected him. And initially, he was humble about it. He stopped. But then he quickly got back into being very divisive. They tried to correct him again. He became angry. He left. Um, A divisive person can change the culture of an entire local church. You know, we can be intimidated by someone who just has like a strong personality. Maybe this person is very assertive. Maybe they're very charismatic. Maybe in life, they're very wealthy, very intelligent. And again, that can make them very intimidating to talk to. Maybe they just feel out of your league to approach. It just doesn't matter. If someone is divisive, they must be confronted. Now, being divisive doesn't mean you disagree a lot. (laughs) I think a person can disagree with things that are said even frequently and actually not be a divisive person. They just care a lot about the truth. It doesn't mean that you're very convicted on things that maybe another person isn't convicted on, and that requires conversation and adjustment. Uh, That's not what that means. A person can have strong conversations, or rather, a person can have strong convictions that other people have to struggle to navigate and actually not be a divisive person. A divisive person is someone who is stirring up brethren against each other. Uh, They are combative. Uh, they cause trouble in relationships and they refuse to reconcile or humble themselves and take responsibility. So I just want to be careful and balanced that we're not talking about someone who disagrees with things that are said. It's not someone who has strong convictions. This is someone who is stirring up brethren against one another in a way that, again, with patience and in working together becomes very clear. This is not just an innocent disagreement. This is somebody who's having a very bad attitude that they're not willing to change. You cannot tolerate it. So if a divisive person won't repent after warnings, the church has to withdraw from them. And I want you to think, if I am being divisive, I just have to humble myself. You know, remember Galatians chapter 2? Peter was stirring up division. And Paul had to confront him publicly. And Paul even said, Peter stood condemned. So it's not that Paul was ignoring the reality of the problem as Titus 3.11. So again, maybe we cross the line with something we're passionate about or in a conversation and we have to be warned. So 
Again, this isn't just some big bad person. Even Peter, an apostle, at a point was stirring up division and needed to be corrected. Romans 16, as an example, says those who cause dissensions and hindrances turn away from them. But again, this is a matter of giving them warnings, giving them opportunities, and if they do not listen to warning, then they must be withdrawn from. I want to emphasize a good-hearted person will respond humbly and repentantly to being confronted and corrected. A good-hearted person is willing to listen. And they're going to be sensitive about being uh, divisive. I imagine Peter, especially with what we just read in our Bible class about Peter's reference to Paul, the beloved brother, I imagine Peter, when Paul confronted him, Peter humbled himself and was thankful for Paul confronting him about stirring up division. A good-hearted person, when they are confronted, they will respond humbly and they will repent. However, a sure sign that somebody has a really bad attitude is when they are confronted, they get angry and accusatory. And wow, how many times I've seen this. We have to be so careful about this. It's not that we can't reflect on becoming angry and be sorry and then humble ourselves, but we have to realize it is not a sign of a good heart that if somebody confronts you about being divisive and stirring up trouble, that you become angry with them, that you huff and puff and even become accusatory against them or or of others. That's the sign of, that's a sure sign of being a divisive person. And something else I've seen that, again, is a sure sign that something is deeply wrong. A divisive person, instead of taking responsibility, they deflect blame. They say, well, brother so-and-so, or they did this to me, or, you know, they're the problem, or why aren't you confronting them? Or they'll portray themselves as a victim. Which, by the way, deflecting blame or portraying yourself as a victim is divisive (laughs) because you're pushing blame on someone else, thus setting people against each other. You're portraying yourself as a victim, thus projecting blame on someone else, pitting brethren against one another. All of these are manipulative tactics of pride to just simply avoid taking responsibility. A good-hearted person doesn't do any of those things. I'll tell you this. There may be a very, 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 very rare time where it is about one person being right and another person being wrong. But I'll tell you this. I cannot imagine a good-hearted brother or sister pressuring you to pick sides in a conflict. I literally cannot imagine that. You know, as I was preparing this lesson, I was trying to think of brethren I really, really respect. Brethren where I I really think a lot of their godly example. And I thought, can I even imagine them, first of all, being in a conflict where people need to pick sides and then pressuring people to pick sides? And I thought, I literally cannot even imagine that. A good-hearted person will probably outright never get themselves into a situation where you feel pressured to have to pick sides. And certainly, if you try to make peace in the situation, they won't pressure you in a way that it's us against them. Again, these are signs of a serious problem, not things to get involved in and get lost in the whirlwind that can come from those things. You know, a godly-minded person will handle those things very differently and be able to be sensitive to the signs, okay, This is something where a lot has gone wrong entirely in the whole situation. This isn't just about one person being right and one person being wrong. There's a lot that's gone wrong here. And oftentimes wisdom needs to cut through that, right? So we just have to be wise and humble and being really careful to recognize what are the signs of arrogance and divisiveness rather than somebody being humble 
and peaceable. So with that, I want to end the lesson with what to pursue. And this isn't in Titus. Um, and again, just with this being a part of uh, subjects in Titus, um, I'm going to try to be kind of broad here and commend them to you in terms of thinking more about it. But I want to go to Ephesians here and just advocate the emphasis that God places on our unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 and 11 through 13. If you'll turn in your Bibles there. So this is what we are to pursue. We're to avoid these kind of divisive, controversial things. We're to turn away from people who are relentlessly divisive themselves. But in contrast to this, I think it would be helpful to re-emphasize and remind us all about what we're encouraged to do in the opposite. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So to have on the board is this. Diligently pursuing unity, and not just showing up at assemblies, but investing in the brethren, investing in this way and determining to have this attitude, not just at times when I see you, but even outside of times where, we're, where, where we are even physically present. If we are diligently pursuing unity with brethren, that will inherently prevent a person from stirring up division. And if a person who's pursuing this is confronted that they're being divisive, imagine how sensitive they would be to that when this is their ambition. This, in Ephesians, is the first application in the practical side of the letter. In chapters 1 through 3, to summarize it, Paul's been talking about the unity of the Spirit. Everything that God has done to unify his church in the Spirit. And the exhortation to start the practical side of the letter is, okay, so now considering all of this, preserve this unity that God has given to his church. How do we do this in verse 2? With all humility, I've got to think of other people more highly than myself. I have to set myself aside. I have to have all gentleness. I've got to determine not to be harmful to people, to not be mean-spirited, to not be abrasive, to not argue from anger. I've got to be patient and show tolerance for each other in love. I think it's helpful to think. I'm being told I need to show tolerance and love because it will be difficult to tolerate the brethren. <laughs> And so I have to be told by God, show tolerance in love. And this tolerance in love means not just gritting your teeth, but you are constantly trying to renew a tolerant and loving and kind perspective. And verse 3, this requires diligence. The unity of the Spirit is something God has given us in our salvation together. But this is delicate. It's delicate in that Satan tries particularly to destroy this unity. This is a unity more delicate than your family or your friends. You know, your family or friends, people who maybe you get more easily along with in the world or because of worldly values, Satan doesn't care about destroying those relationships. Satan cares about destroying these relationships. And so these can be sensitive, delicate relationships. We need to be diligent and realize, God says, these are more important relationships than my physical family or my worldly friends. Not that it's wrong to have a bond with my physical family or even with people in the world, but these are the most important relationships that I have to willfully prioritize. Look at verse 11 through 13. There's two unities in Ephesians 4. 
There's the unity of the Spirit that we have inherently in our salvation, but then there's another unity that we have to work towards together. Verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Got a little behind. So again, one, we have to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit. This requires humility, patience, gentleness, tolerance. But we also have to patiently strive for the unity of the faith. Now, verse 13. Have we arrived at the unity of the faith? Are we all at the same place in our faith together? Do we all have the same degree of knowledge? Do we all have the same degree of maturity? We don't. The reality is, we're not going to agree on everything. That's actually okay. The reality is, we're going to have to work through problems. That's okay. So, we have to understand there are two kinds of unity. There's the unity we have of the Spirit that we have to preserve. But then there's this unity that we have to attain to. That we have to be very patient to build each other up, to help each other grow. We are trying to further attain to this unity of the faith, to further attain to a unity of knowledge, to further attain to a unity of maturity. This requires us, verse 12, to work hard. It requires in verse 11, a lot of teaching. And again, a lot of patience. People who get this, they may disagree with things. They may bring up problems, but they will work through those things in a way that cultivates greater unity. And finally, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. This will be the last scripture. But I didn't want to go through this lesson without emphasizing James chapter 3. Because I just, I love the way it's worded. I think our relationships with brethren uniquely demand, they demand seeking and applying the wisdom from above. They demand it. James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not to that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The idea is this. If we're seeking the wisdom from above, this in verse 17 and 18 will be the continuous outcome of our relationships, even through disagreements, even through problems, even through having hard conversations, you know, even as we talk about what to do with this building, you know, and what to do about <laughs> what to do with the church treasury, you know, those matters that are ultimately spiritually less substantial than maybe other more clear doctrinal matters. You know, as we work together, as we work together without elders, which can be challenging, as we are patient, as we love each other, this will be the fruit of our interactions together. I asked a brother about, I asked a brother that I respect about counsel on this matter. And he said something that I wanted to quote. He said, the more you work with people and the more you listen to God in how you treat them, the more flexible you become in accordance with God's flexibility. 
Now look, that requires, again, wisdom and balance. There's matters where there is no flexibility, right? There's matters where the Bible is clear on that, and to advocate for something different is actually to advocate for a different doctrine. But there are a lot of things, though, that as we work with people, as we try to be fair, as we try to listen, as we try to humble ourselves and give others credit, we become more flexible and we realize, maybe I don't need to be quite so hard on that. Maybe I can give a little yielding on this point. Maybe I can let this decision be made because ultimately it's not hurting anything to let that decision be made. Again, the more we work with people, the more we listen to God and how we treat them, the more flexible you become in accordance with God's flexibility. Not our flexibility, God's flexibility. This requires humility, it requires patience, and it requires diligence in really trying to work with people and invest in them. And so much becomes clear through patience, as painful as that process can be. All right, that's where we'll stop the lesson. I hope that's been helpful in terms of not only emphasizing a problem in Titus, but trying to remind us of some groundwork principles that we continuously really need to keep in mind as we work together. Um, as we finish the lesson, I'd like to say a prayer for these things. And then if there are any needs that need to be brought forward, uh, we'll have the invitation song uh, for that purpose afterwards. If you'll pray with me.